they're really ratcheting up very fast. And the, the biggest driver of this, of course, is investor pressure. So the example I always use is a, an initiative called the Climate Action 100 Plus. And this is now a group of over 600 investors and asset managers. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Faella, founder of Smart Energy Decisions, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Harrison, head of sustainability research at Bloomberg NEF, to discuss the state of the voluntary carbon offset market. We've had the opportunity to work with BNF and Kyle over the last three years, which, Kyle, it's been indeed a, a privilege. For our audience, I know you're going to find what Kyle has to say both interesting and valuable. Kyle, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Thanks for taking time to being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. And yeah, it's been great collaborating over the past few years. I would never turn down a chance to go to Ponte Vedra for a conference. So it's an easy sell. (laughs) That's great. Well, we look forward to having you there in the future. Kyle, why don't you start by giving us an overview of your role, maybe telling us a little bit about Bloomberg NEF. Sure. So starting at the, at the highest level, Bloomberg, of course, is a financial data provider. And Bloomberg NEF is the market research arm of Bloomberg, specifically focused on the low-carbon transition. A lot of our, our team's work is focused on markets and technologies. So we have teams that will look at the cost of solar, or look at power market dynamics across the United States. The sustainability team looks at that low carbon transition through the lens of the private sector. So we help companies understand ESG reporting, target setting. So things like setting a net zero goal or a science-based target or even something like an RE100 goal. And then once they've set that, we provide research on how you go ahead and finance and work towards achieving those targets. So using things like sustainable debt instruments or going a step further and purchasing clean energy or, of course, what we're talking about today carbon offsets uh, in order to achieve a net zero goal or some other type of sustainability target. Yeah, that's a nice way to articulate the portfolio. You've really got research projects for every stage of the of the journey. Well, for our conversation today, Kyle, I really want to tackle it in kind of three buckets. First, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to get a primer on the voluntary carbon offset market. We'd then like to talk about kind of the state of the market, what's happening now, where's it headed? And then my favorite part of Smart Energy Voices is where we get to learn a little about our guest and understand what your journey's been like. So jumping right into this primer on the voluntary carbon offset market, let's start with the very basic. What is a carbon offset and how is it created? Yeah, so it's a credit for every ton of emission that is avoided or removed from a specific project. So for example, as a company, I can invest in a project that is planting trees or protecting forests. And then actually the the emission reductions that are, or the carbon that is stored or sequestered from those trees can actually go ahead and generate a carbon offset. And as a company, I can go ahead and retire that offset in order to meet a sustainability target. 
Okay. From a, a pricing standpoint, tell us a little bit about how, how those offsets are priced. So in the voluntary market, it's quite complicated. At the most basic level, a developer really is free to charge whatever they'd like for a carbon offset. And that's one of the challenges with this market. As a corporation, I can go speak to two different project developers that are, again, planting trees, say, in the Amazon, and maybe they're you know, right next to each other. And one of those projects can offer a price twice as expensive for a carbon offset compared to the other one. Theoretically, though, on, on paper, really the pricing for that offset should be what is the necessary price needed to bring that project over the line for that project to be built and then therefore decarbonizing? If I think about something like a clean energy project, that project might already be economic, right? It might be cheaper than a combined cycle gas turbine or a coal plant. And on that premise, can you really generate carbon offsets from that project? That developer doesn't need that revenue from the offsets in order to build the project. Conversely, on the other hand, you might have an endangered rainforest, for example, Maybe there's a threat to cut down those trees. And the revenue from those carbon offsets can actually be used to further protect that forest. So the actual driver there is a lot stronger. And this is a phrase that we call additionality. And it's the single biggest factor that goes into the pricing of an offset. It's how can I, as a company, incentivize new added decarbonization that wouldn't have otherwise happened? I would mention, though, that there are a few other factors that do go into pricing as well. They're just a little bit harder to quantify. So one of those is, is measurability. Again, using that comparison of, say, a clean energy project and a forestry project, it's a lot easier for me to measure the emission reductions from a clean energy project. I can slap a meter on that project and really quickly understand how much electricity that project's generating and then look at the carbon intensity of the grid that it exists in to count it. In the carbon offset world, maybe this is a, a cheesy joke, but this is a podcast, so why not? But <laughs> what I always like to say is if a tree falls in the forest, is it even storing carbon anymore, right? It's very difficult for people to get a handle on how much carbon that tree is actually sequestering. So the measurability of a project is really important. And it's a lot more expensive to try to go ahead and try to measure carbon sequestration and therefore offsets generated from, say, a forestry project. And then the last one is that I want to highlight is vintage. So as a buyer, I can purchase a carbon offset that was produced yesterday or I can purchase a carbon offset that was generated, say, 10 years ago. Those older projects that were issued earlier that have an older, what we would call vintage, they tend to be cheaper. The main reason being that that project has not had a customer in order to sell those offsets for the past couple of years. As a result, it's generally viewed as a lower quality project. So there's quite a few factors here. All of them, unfortunately, are very difficult to quantify, which overall makes this a very difficult market to navigate if you're a newcomer. Fascinating. It's the first time I've heard the term vintage applied to offset pricing. So would vintage and additionality be somewhat analogous? Older projects would really not offer additionality and be priced less than newer projects would have that additionality component? Exactly. Basically the opposite of the wine industry. Right. Well, thanks. So let's talk about the market today, but let's really kind of start by talking about the driver of the market and that's what's happening with sustainability commitments. And I know you spent a lot of time studying this, Kyle, in, in your role. What do you see as the major overall trends right now in terms of the pace and scope of corporate and municipal sustainability commitments that are that are being made? Yeah, so they're really they're really ratcheting up very fast. And the, the biggest driver of this, of course, is investor pressure. So the example I always use is a, an initiative called the Climate Action 100 Plus. 
And this is now a group of over 600 investors and asset managers that are pressuring their heaviest emitting companies to take more radical action in decarbonizing, but also implementing a lot of other environmental, social, and governance measures. And they're specifically taking aim at what they call 167 focus companies. And these are deemed to be the heaviest emitting companies in the world. It includes a lot of oil majors, a lot of airlines and transport companies, but there's also you know things like chemical companies and metals and mining companies in there as well. What we've seen is that over half of those 167 focus companies have set a net zero target or equivalent. So they've pledged that at some point down the line, whether it's 2030, 40, or 50, that they will be reducing or offsetting their emissions at a level equivalent to what they emit on an annual basis. And nearly all of those net zero commitments have come in the past two years. So there's a huge surge in companies that are going out and making these really and setting these really ambitious goals. But the interesting thing is if you look at the the carbon footprints for some of these companies, a lot of them are in much harder to abate sectors. John, you and I have talked a lot in the past about clean energy procurement, right? And clean energy is a really effective instrument to reduce your scope two emissions, which come indirectly from grid electricity purchases. If I'm a technology company and the majority of my footprint is classified as scope two, in a lot of cases, I have a much more viable solution to achieving a net zero goal because you have this availability of this, this blueprint for buying clean energy at a large scale. But if you think about it from the standpoint of, say, an airline or an oil major, it's very difficult for them to go ahead and reduce their emissions without completely changing their business model, right? If I'm an airline, I can optimize flight routes. I can upgrade my fleet. I can look at sustainable aviation fuels. But none of these is a fully effective solution to achieving a net zero goal. If I'm an oil major, the majority of my emissions come from the use of my products downstream. So really, a lot of this is coming from customer demand or the, the ability for me as an oil major to stop producing oil. And you know maybe that is a strategy a couple decades down the line, but it's not an immediate one. And as a result, this presents a huge and immediate opportunity for something like a voluntary carbon offset for companies to, in some ways, continue doing business as they're doing now, maybe with some augmentations, but still go ahead and decarbonize through this instrument. Wow, that was a really tight, dead-on assessment of kind of where things are. You hit on so many key issues, the the financial pressure, which is clearly the biggest driver. I had not heard of the Climate Action 100 Plus before, and we're definitely going to look into them. But in referencing the kind of the half of the 167 focus companies and made a net zero commitment in the past two years is some data behind what I described as kind of the goalpost moving from what 24 months ago was a real preoccupation with hitting renewable energy targets to what is now laser light focus on overall emission reduction. And that's resulting in industrials getting more into the game and really trying to figure out what they're going to do to decarbonize their thermal loads. Exactly. And I would just, I would just add, right. I mean, if, even if you look at the footprint of an oil major or a big metals and mining company, a lot of their carbon footprint, of course, is scope two. So clean energy is still a very essential part of the equation. And the power purchase agreement model is only going to continue to grow. We continue to see that market explode. Fleet electrification is going to play a very important role here. But really, again, when companies take a step back in these hard-to-abate sectors, there's just certain parts of their footprint that they can't address with technology as it currently is today. And that's where this massive opportunity for offsets exists. 
Yeah. So let's dig into that a little further. What role do you see carbon offsets playing in uh, fulfillment of these commitments, Kyle? So in a lot of cases, they're kind of going to be that that final mechanism that a company will use to kind of address any other emissions that they, they can't reduce with any other mechanism. So for example, a company might look at clean energy and fleet electrification, like I mentioned, or they'll, you know, in the case of some of these oil companies, look at changing their business model and moving away from oil into technologies like hydrogen or clean energy development. Once they've exhausted all those things, most of these companies are still going to see some residual emissions that no matter what they do, they can't reduce them or remove them. That's where there's going to be an opportunity for carbon offsets. It's kind of like this this minimal viable product kind of at the bottom, right? You are going to also have some companies though that are in a lot of ways take the easy way out and they're just going to dive right in and they're going to purchase millions of carbon offsets off the bat to at least in the interim period, meet a carbon neutral or net zero target. So you're really going to see a whole range of, of different strategies here for buying them. It really just kind of depends on, on where your company sits in the, in the overall decarbonization spectrum. Interesting. So in some cases, it could be used for that last piece that you can't get at one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who wants to take the easy way out and just cut the check. Related to that, my understanding is that there's a group right now that is really trying to set some guidelines for when and how offsets could be used. I guess there was a comment period on the policy guidelines. Do you see rules or guidelines or requirements being established where that gap from taking the easy way out and just cutting a check to only using it for the last mile will be narrowed? So there's a lot of companies that are are kind of looking at improving this market, right? And there's definitely an element of learning to crawl before you can walk here, right? There's so many companies that are now going out setting these targets, and there's all this newfound demand. Just to take a step back, the, the voluntary carbon offset market has existed in some form for several decades, right? But it's having this renaissance moment now because of all this demand from these net zero goals. Um, and the problem is... It's ramping up so fast that there's not the proper infrastructure or regulation in place now for this market to continue to grow in a a sound and, like we mentioned, additional way. So there are some companies or some groups, sorry, that are looking at setting rules around when can you buy an offset. One group that I would just bring up that's going to have a big piece of research out and then guidelines out on this in November is the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Uh So companies can join the Science-Based Targets Initiative to set a Paris Alliance emission reductions goal. Under the Science-Based Targets Initiative, you cannot purchase offsets in order to meet that target. What they're creating in November is going to be a net zero framework. So you can take that science-based target that typically goes out to 2030, and you can go a step further and set a net zero goal out by 2050. What the Science-Based Targets Initiative is saying is that, first and foremost, you need to reduce or remove your emissions in line with a well below two degree scenario. You cannot use offsets. Once you've gone ahead and met that trajectory, then only then can you purchase carbon offsets. And they take it a step further and say you can only purchase offsets that actually remove carbon rather than simply avoid it. So a good example would be, again, a clean energy project. It's not actually going ahead storing or sequestering carbon. It's simply avoiding what would otherwise be emitted. On the other end of the spectrum, you have nascent technologies like carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And you have nature-based solutions like forestry and reforestation that actually go ahead and store that carbon. So what the Science-Based Targets Initiative is saying is you can only purchase offsets from those projects in order to hit a target. So part of this is setting guidelines and rules around 
what types of offsets should count when you go ahead and purchase one. But then there's other groups like the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets that are looking at this much more from a market fundamental standpoint. So right now, we don't have the infrastructure in place to allow for a very liquid market with high-frequency trading in order for all these companies to go ahead and meet their net zero goals. So there's a lot of effort going in and putting in a governance body to kind of oversee this market. There's talk of standardizing registries. So right now, if I'm a developer of a carbon offset project, there's kind of four major registries that my project could get listed on. While they all are quite similar, there is a few differences between all of them, and it becomes very difficult again as a stakeholder to navigate. So there's talk of what can we do to actually go ahead and standardize across these registries or create one overarching registry to make sure that all of this is kind of synced up. And then there's kind of looking at this from the the commodities market angle side, right? So can we create things like benchmark contracts, have exchanges, futures curves, right? All these things to make it a little bit easier for companies to go ahead and buy carbon offsets. So that's kind of the other side of the coin here where there's a lot of effort going in to make this a, a much more liquid market. Wow. 12 months from now, it's a it's an entirely different ballgame. And 12 months before this, there was, it was an entirely different one as well. This is this is changing very fast, but that's a great opportunity for groups like BNF, right? To kind of keep our finger on the pulse. Yeah. And smart energy decisions. Exactly. Yes. Yes. We're in this together. Yep. So the science-based targets piece is interesting because I guess if you want to be SBT verified, you're going to have to comply with their guidelines. So they're going to have a big hammer here. And they're not only going to define when it can be used, but they're also going to define the types of projects that can be utilized. These registries, are they essentially validating the integrity of a project? So it's not just you and I setting up Kyle and John's voluntary offsets? That's one of their roles, right? So if you think about a carbon offset project, the project gets built it gets listed on a registry, then that project issues carbon offsets. And those offsets maybe are exchanged between a broker of a project to a buyer, and then that buyer retires that offset to meet a sustainability goal. Theoretically, those stages that I just mentioned should get tracked within a registry. In terms of verification, the registries do have a role to play there, but there also is third-party verification as well. And this is a very important part of this market. And there's been a lot of of buyers that have thought they're purchasing carbon offsets from a very high quality project that has something like a co-benefit, like it's improving indigenous communities or it's protecting wildlife or something like that. But then a little more research goes into that and it turns out that that project is actually much lower quality than they anticipated. So there's a huge need for even more emphasis being put on verification of projects to go ahead and prove that they're higher quality. And again, a registry does have a role to play there, but there's other parties involved in that too. Yeah, that makes sense. We've started to touch on kind of what the current voluntary carbon offset market looks like, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to dig a little deeper here. What does the overall market look like? What are the key trends that you're seeing recognizing how fast this whole thing is evolving? So a few years ago, I said that the the carbon offset market has existed now for a couple of decades. Starting in around 2018 was when everything started to take off. So between 2018 and 2019, we saw issuance of carbon offsets nearly double in overall volume. We saw a very similar doubling between 2019 and 2020. And this year through August, we've already seen 255 million carbon offsets issued by projects around the world. I and mean, that's a record year. 
And we're expecting that by the time the year's done, it will be another doubling this year. So supply for carbon offsets continues to grow. But if you actually look at a registry, there's thousands of projects around the world. And when those projects are registered, they're expected to lift a capacity, right? So in a perfect world, how many carbon offsets could those projects theoretically issue? But if you look at the gap still between actual issuance and that expected capacity on an annual basis, carbon offset projects in a lot of cases are still just issuing a fraction of what they're capable of. Some of these, of course, I would actually say quite a bit of them are are just miscalculations. Maybe the developer overestimated the, the potential of that project. Of course, there are edge cases where they underestimated it as well. But by and large, I think that the main takeaway there is you have a huge slew of, of either inactive projects that don't have any customers yet, or projects that are still not issuing nearly as much as they're capable of doing. So right now, this is really a, a buyer's market, right? There's, there's plenty of potential supply, and there's plenty of opportunity for these projects to ramp up to help companies meet their goals. However, that supply bit demand balance is shifting very quickly. Again, I mentioned that stat of all these companies going out and, and setting net zero targets. What we saw was those 83 Climate Action 100 plus focus companies, if they were to go ahead and achieve their net zero goals in 2050, it would result in 8.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide removed or, or offset on an annual basis. Um, and I just told you that the current, the record supply that we've seen in 2021 was 255 billion. Um, there are companies like Shell that the current supply in the market is not enough to meet their sole demand as one company. So really quickly, this is going to shift from a buyer's market to a seller's market. And that's also going to have an upward, put upward pressure on prices as well. So long-term, we could see, especially in sectors that focus on removal, again, those nature-based solutions and those technologies like carbon capture, you could see the prices for offsets go up significantly in the next couple of years as a result of that supply-demand balance. Yeah, there are some corporate buyers that I've talked to that have put pencil to paper because they've been asked to prepare an anticipated budget for for this with a three-year time horizon. And there's a very deep concern, borderline fear around what's going to happen with these prices because of exactly what you've described. I really want to kind of hammer home that point again of you're going to also start to see this, this chasm start to form between those removal and avoided credits, right? Right now, if you kind of look at the, the supply curve, the voluntary carbon offset market, forestry projects tend to be the most expensive. There are those kind of very special carbon capture projects that exist on the fringes of the market, but there's not a, a ton of projects that exist out there like that. You know, when Bill Gates talks about he offsets his carbon footprint for $400 a ton, he's likely looking at one of those projects, right? But for the, the traditional buyer, kind of the highest quality projects right now are our forestry projects. And there's a lot of challenges, like I mentioned, when it comes to measurability and things like that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have something like a clean energy project, where again, those are cheap today because clean energy is already cost competitive with other traditional forms of energy, and it might have other sources of revenue, right? So when a developer goes out and tries to develop a clean energy project, the first thing they seek out in terms of revenue is, is a power purchase agreement. But they can also go ahead and monetize renewable energy certificates. In some markets in the world, they might also be getting subsidy support. So in some cases, that carbon offset might be your second or third stream of revenue that's going into this project. So the value that's really being generated by that offset is, is pretty minuscule. So there's already this, this separation between some of these avoided emissions projects and, and the removal ones. 
But as more guidance comes out from groups like the Science-Based Targets Initiative, there's more demand for those avoided credits. You're going to see a huge separation um, in those prices, and it's going to drive a huge wedge between the two. Yeah. Relative to the market, are there key sectors of companies, your customers, your organizations that have a, a higher demand than, than, than average for these offsets? It's definitely the, the hard to abate sectors again, right? So oil and gas is obviously a, a perfect candidate for this because the, the opportunities for them to decarbonize aren't as readily available. You can say the same for something like the metals and mining sector, right? So those companies have not been as involved to date, but kind of similar to how we saw the oil and gas sector set in that zero goals, metals and mining companies are starting to follow. I would expect something very similar when it comes to carbon offset demand. Of course, the airlines have been very involved in this sector as well. They actually take it a step further and they, they've added kind of a consumer-facing element to this where you, know, you can buy a flight and you can actually go ahead and offset your flight by purchasing carbon offsets or the airline will purchase them and retire them on your behalf. So airlines are obviously a, a great candidate here. The one that I would throw in that I, I think most people don't expect is tech. Um, and I know I mentioned earlier that the tech companies, most of their carbon footprint is, is scope two. So they can buy clean energy to, to meet a majority of their target. That hasn't stopped the, the Amazons and the Microsofts of the world from getting very involved in, in the carbon offset world. And this might be more of a long-term play from these companies to kind of bolster their own in-house expertise, either to develop projects or to advise other companies on, on entering this market because they see it as such an opportunity. So Amazon, a couple months ago, announced the LEAF initiative. I believe it's lowering emissions. You know what? I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to butcher it. There's too many acronyms in sustainability these days. Yes, but yes. They, they formed a group called the LEAF Coalition where they're going to be developing carbon offsets projects in, in rainforests around the world. And they're going to be selling those offsets for $10 a ton. Amazon will be using some of them for their sustainability goals. But again, this could be a long-term play in getting more equipped and understanding how all of this works. In terms of Microsoft, they've been an experienced buyer of carbon offsets, but they were also an early investor, some of the companies that are rolling out technology to measure emission reductions and therefore carbon offsets. So one of the key companies in their, in their portfolio is a company called Pachama. And what Pachama does is they use, or they basically created a, a technology cocktail of LIDAR, satellite imagery, atmospheric data, and they're using this combination to better measure emission reductions from forestry. And to, again, go ahead and answer that elusive question of when the tree falls, is it storing carbon? So again, I think this is a partially a long-term play for Microsoft to get a better understanding of how this market works, see if there's any opportunities that they can directly benefit from as a result. Yeah. Well, listen, it, it makes a lot of sense. If you've got a huge need and you know the supply is not going to be there, Companies are stepping up, taking a leadership position, leading project development, which creates an opportunity for others to tie in. Not unlike a large renewable energy aggregation project where a project gets developed, there's a lead-off tanker, but then there are others that, that get to participate. Exactly. And we, you know, even, we even go as far as calling that an emission reductions purchase agreement or ERPA in the carbon offset market. And those contracts can, in many ways, be structured similar to a PPA. So there, there actually is literally an equivalent to PPAs in the offset world. Yeah, a lot is going on. <laughs> so a lot's happening, market's changing quickly. Let's look forward a little bit. Can I grab your crystal ball and give us a sense for where you see the 
voluntary carbon offset market headed? What does the future look like? And even if we just say 12 months, let's not get crazy and talk three to five years out. Right now, there's definitely a bit of a divide between companies in, in terms of how they view that additionality. And again, we can continue to make these comparisons to the clean energy sector. A lot of companies really value the opportunity to buy carbon offsets over the counter. So they can lock in directly into a bilateral emission reductions purchase agreement with a carbon offset project and and buy those offsets long-term. And and theoretically, that allows that project to get financed and, and therefore built. However, that requires a lot of expertise, right? There's not a blueprint for this ERPA like there is for a PPA. Most companies really have no idea what they're getting themselves into when they enter this market. So that's not for everyone. A lot of companies instead would love to purchase carbon offsets from an exchange, right? So while you do have some of these companies that are kind of holding out and they want to do this in that way where they can kind of, you know, they can put it in their in their sustainability report. They can actually say, we're purchasing offsets from this project and it's benefiting this community. You don't get that same level of engagement with something like an exchange. But nonetheless, I think exchanges are going to grow in prominence as you have more companies entering this market. There's just too much demand and all that demand cannot be satisfied through these bilateral contracts, right? You need some type of quicker, more liquid form of transacting. So one thing I would keep an eye out for is is a lot more infrastructure coming into play in this market to make this more closely resemble like a commodities market. The other one, and I kind of got at this a little bit earlier when I mentioned Pachama, is you're going to see a bit of an arms race from people or companies getting into the, the game of creating tech to better measure carbon offsets. So there's a lot of companies, there's, there's about 15 other companies that are very similar to Pachama, that again, each of them offering their own unique technology cocktail to go ahead and more accurately measure carbon offsets. And a lot of the big tech companies are getting involved either through venture capital or developing this technology themselves. So those are kind of the two things that I would keep an eye on, at least for the next 12 months. Moving forward long-term, again, I mentioned this earlier, I think you're going to see prices for carbon offsets of all types start to rise pretty significantly. They're going to rise a lot faster for removal offsets than they will for avoided offsets. But nonetheless, both of those kind of parts of the market are going to be much more expensive a couple of years down the line than they are today. So those are the main things that I would keep an eye out for as any stakeholder that's, that's evaluating this market. Fascinating. How about on the consumer side? Is there, will the consumer play a role here at all in the future? In a lot of ways, it's a very easy market for a consumer to engage in. You and I are never going to go sign a PPA, right? We can, of course, we can install solar on our rooftop, and that's a phenomenal way to, to decarbonize, or we can buy an electric vehicle. But in a lot of ways, a carbon offset is, is quite a bit easier, and it's a bit more open for any consumer to get involved with. I mentioned the airlines before. A lot of those airlines allow you to offset your flights. But I would also mention a company like Shopify, right, which is actually going out there and allowing or creating an environment for commerce where you can actually purchase things and, and decarbonize your purchases online. So there's quite a few companies that are looking at offering online marketplaces that allow you to purchase offsets in a, in a more efficient manner. There's also companies that are looking a lot more at empowering small businesses to allow them to issue carbon offsets. Because I mentioned we're really quickly, we're going to need a lot more supply. And that means empowering groups like farmers to start monetizing carbon offsets. So there's a group that I would mention called Nori, um, and what they're doing is actually they're creating a platform that allows, say, farmers and other people that work in the agriculture industry to start monetizing carbon offsets and actually listing them on a marketplace. So there's definitely a lot of ways for consumers to get involved. And, and of course, it's 
very easy again for us to go ahead and just purchase offsets as regular consumers. If you look at the the list of people who are retiring carbon offsets on some of the registries, some of them actually show the party that those offsets are being retired on behalf of. For every ExxonMobil or Delta Airlines that you see on there, you also see John or Jane Doe, just some average person that is going out and purchasing offsets to negate what, whatever high carbon activity they were doing. Fascinating. So you've got this tsunami of emission reduction commitments being made, which is going to lead to incredible demand and a dynamic market in, in offsets. So it's great to get your take on where things are headed. So we've done the primer. We've talked about the current state of the market. We've talked about where it's headed. Let's now talk about Kyle. It has been great getting to know you over the past few years, and it's fantastic to see how your career's evolved. And Bloomberg, you've accomplished a lot in a really short period of time. Easy for me to say, how did you get started in sustainability and, and what's been your career progression? Yeah, so I, I studied sustainable development at school uh, in Colorado at U Boulder. So I've always been very interested in the topic and kind of growing up, I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but growing up, you know, spending a lot of time outdoors and everything, it really excites you to kind of get involved in the sector. And I've been at BNF pretty much since I graduated school. So I, I kind of just from doing some poking around online, learning about opportunities in New York City, I came across the group and luckily there was a, an opportunity for me to join. But I think what's really interesting is the way m- my core areas of coverage has progressed. It's really kind of a, a perfect example of how dynamic the low carbon transition is, right? So a lot of our work on the sustainability team uh, a couple of years ago was, was very much focused around clean energy procurement. And of course, that's still a very important part of this. But now a lot of discussions have moved towards net zero and, and a broader net zero strategy. Um, and what can you do to go ahead and achieve that target? And carbon offsets kind of go hand in hand with that. So it's been fun to kind of just see how dynamic this, this industry is. And I think that's given me a whole, a whole lot of other and new opportunities. Whether I like it or not, I'm kind of forced to try and learn new things, which from my standpoint is, is of course, a, a great thing. Yeah, well, you're right in the way, baby. That's what it sounds <laughs> to me like. Listen, you're obviously doing a great job in delivering the goods, right? Because you rarely get a chance to do more until you've excelled in your current rules. So uh, congratulations and really looking forward to following you and seeing what's next for you as you advance at Bloomberg and wherever that may lead. What are you most proud of in your career? Well, I mean, of course, it has to be my my presentation at the Smart Energy Decisions event, of course, especially Ponte Vedra. <laughs> that theme is repeating itself here. I have a sense you want to be in our June event in Ponte Vedra. Eh, just a bit. Yeah, I bet you it's going to be really hot there in June, though. Right? Well, you'll have, you'll have to let us know. Yeah. It's on the ocean. Yeah, that's true. That's a that's a tough question. I would say I think there's a there's a lot of things. I mean, one thing more broadly I would say is when these new topics kind of emerge or these new markets emerge like carbon offsets, there's so many people trying to figure out what's happening all at once, right? And that creates a really unique opportunity for BNF to be a very prominent voice in kind of leading and providing insight on on how these markets work. I'm always very proud when when Myself, but also anyone else, my team or at BNF kind of dives into a new topic and really becomes a kind of an authoritative voice on that topic, right? And there, there's always the risk that 
you're going to have people that, that disagree with you on it or they're going to think you're wrong and stuff like that. And you definitely might be, but a very important part of this role is just being bold in, in your analysis and making sure that you are kind of paving the way for other stakeholders to get more involved. For a more kind of specific or, or literal example, I think the, the presentations that we get to do at events are, are always really exciting. Some of the audiences for those have been quite big and it's, it's a nerve-wracking experience, but it's always really fun. And the fact that it's nerve-wracking, of course, also means that you you have to prepare a lot and you learn a ton in the process. So I think that's a good one. And then maybe some of the media opportunities as well. So, you know, going on Bloomberg television, speaking on podcasts like this, these are always really exciting and fun opportunities and it's a little cringeworthy during yourself afterwards, but it's also very fun. Well, you do a great job at it. Oh, thank you. So coverage of Bloomberg has evolved. Your career responsibilities have evolved with the market. I'm interested in kind of how that's worked. Have you gone to management and said, Henny, here's where the market's headed. I, I think we need to be shifting coverage here. And then you get charged to do it. Or has the company come to you and said, we, we see the puck moving and we want you to go get in front of it? Yeah, I, lo- I love the, the Wayne Gretzky analogy there, by the way. Big talking fan myself. It's a combination of all the above, but the one that you didn't mention, the one that I would highlight as maybe the most important is what are our clients asking about? So if you're getting a lot of client questions about the offset market, chances are it's an important topic and it's going to be very popular if you publish research on that, right? But yeah, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to speaking to people in the industry and keeping your finger on the pulse. Like I've said a, a few times during this during this podcast, right? I think it's a really a combination of all those things, but it definitely makes it fun. And, and a lot of it is throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there have been some misses in the years, but with such a dynamic industry, that doesn't mean anything, right? Because you can really quickly kind of pick up new ideas, throw them at the wall, and then you're going to have new things that, that do stick. Excellent. On a personal level, who's had the greatest impact on, on your career? The second related part to that is who do you admire most professionally? Ooh. So I won't name any names for the greatest impact. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I know there's a couple people vying for this title. I would just say, you know, I've, I've had a, a lot of phenomenal managers over the years at, at Bloomberg. And one of the most important things to your, to your previous questions is they've given me a really good opportunity or they've been giving me the freedom to explore new areas and new topics within the sustainability world. I mean, again, some of them don't always work out, but I think that's the mark of a good manager, right? Is, is giving people the freedom to use their creativity. And in, in a ton of cases, right, that's unlocked really new, amazing opportunities, not just for myself, but for, for BNF as a whole. There's a few people, right, that, that are also really instrumental in, in helping me get my foot in the door at Bloomberg. And without them, I don't think we would be having this conversation today. So that's important as well, because a lot of people might tend to overlook the standard resume from University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, it doesn't exactly stand out to, to most recruiters. So I think those, those people really played an important role. That was a great answer. When I ask that question to people, there are some where an individual immediately comes to mind and there are others like yourself that are a little more cautious and considerate of everyone that's had, that's had an impact on them. So I always like seeing how people answer that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a team effort, right? Yeah. This is hockey. This isn't basketball. <laughs> uh, you need a team to carry it. One person can't do it all on their own. Yep. And look, you know, we've, you've been at Bloomberg Airbelt career. You've got so much game ahead of you. It's kind of crazy. 
But when you look forward, what, what impact is it that you think you'd like to have on the industry? I would say this is the toughest question of all of these ones, right? I guess I would love at the end of the day to be able to, to tie my actions to specific cases of decarbonization. I'll give you a great example. Some of the work that, that we did at BNF on our transition scores. So we published scores earlier this year for the oil and gas sector. I mean, we looked at over 30 oil majors around the world and we said, how prepared are these companies for the low carbon transition? And some companies fared very well. Other companies fared very poorly. And just to name one, it was, it was ExxonMobil, right? And that analysis was actually really crucial in engine number one, winning that proxy vote to get some of the um, more climate focused board members onto the ExxonMobil board. So I think that's like an amazing example of where some of the analysis that BNF has done has, has made a true impact. So whether it is here or, or somewhere else down the line, it'd be really cool to tie some of the work I've done to like a specific change like that, that has led to immediate tangible decarbonization. You know, that's powerful. The desire to make a difference and have an impact. I love that story about the research that engine number one used because I mean, that's going to wind up being looked back on as one of the key sustainability stories of the year. Exxon being kind of brought brought to bear and tiny engine number one rallying major institutional investors and pension funds to get them to create those board seats. As goes Exxon, goes others. Chevron had a big announcement this week about what they're going to be doing to get into hydrogen. So to feel like the work you did had an impact on that is truly meaningful. Yeah. And as, as far as the, the Exxon vote goes, right, that's kind of just the beginning. That same day, right, there was a, a court ruling in the Netherlands that Shell had to go ahead and, and make their emission reductions target more ambitious. You're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. It wasn't just Exxon, which is super exciting. Yeah, that was a big day because both announcements were on the same day. I mean, as you brought it up, let me ask you about it. So as I recall, the government said Shell's targets were not ambitious enough and they declared what the target needed to be. Do you see anything like that ever happening in the U.S.? I don't have any specific examples off the top of my head um, from a legal standpoint, right? Right. But what I would say is that that outcome of the company resisting and then them getting dragged along in a lot of ways, kicking and screaming by their investors, we have seen that quite a bit, right? And that's going to get a lot worse to my, to my point earlier. Yeah, yeah. The investor pressure, as, as you kind of stated at the outset, that's really been a massive driver. Exactly. Well, Kyle, if there's one thing I'm extremely confident on going forward is that you're going to continue to have an impact. I think you're just getting started. It's, it's been a pleasure to be able to work with you over the past couple of years. This has been a great conversation and I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. And it's always a pleasure to to work with Smart Energy Decisions. And I look forward to the next in-person event. And Cota Vidra. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to our listeners, thanks for listening and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next in-person event, see the links in the show notes or visit the events tab on our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Kyle in this podcast on our website and at our events 
all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.